Well, good morning, everybody. Sounds like my microphone is on, so that's a good thing. Um, so today's scripture reading is found in Micah, chapter 6, which is found in the Old Testament and in your bulletin, by the way. Um, if you're using a Bible, it's almost at the end of the Old Testament. Um, or it's on uh, page 731 of your pew Bible. Again, Micah 6, 6 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we ask you now to hear, to, as we turn now, to hear what you are telling us in your word this morning. We ask you to help us understand and, and change us to be more like you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Sometimes things look easy, but they are actually hard and require a good teacher and regular practice to do well. Hitting a baseball looks easy, but is actually very hard. Hitting a curveball is even harder. Same with a golf ball, or at least having it go where you want it to. Making a deliciously flaky, buttery pie crust may seem easy until you try it. Or how about sailing or ice skating? It seems so effortless and graceful until you hit the water or lace up the skates. Any of these activities can look easy, but actually they are not easy at all. Flourishing can seem like that. It can seem simple, but be very difficult to attain. How can one attain a state of healthy, happy, thriving growth? How can people flourish? God says if we want to flourish, we should act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. Not without him, not on our own, based on our own ideas, but according to his direction, with his help. He wants his people to flourish so they can help others to flourish, to be fruitful, to help and bless others, to be positive change agents in the world around us, to heal and flourish and help others heal and flourish as well. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, only through faith in Christ does a person learn to do righteously and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us to that end do we fulfill these three divine requirements. So, if we want to flourish, we should act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. First, a brief overview of the book of Micah itself. The writings are from Micah, a real person who lived in the countryside of Judah during the reigns of Jotham, 
Ahaz, and Hezekiah, 748 to 687 BC. Micah warned about God's judgment against the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah because of the sinfulness of their rulers and prophets and priests. These leaders were not leading as God wanted them to lead. The poor were oppressed, and people's lives did not show that they belonged to a holy God. But Micah promised the restoration of Zion and a kingdom of peace for those who trusted in God. In chapter 5, he prophesied that a ruler born in Bethlehem would set up a kingdom that would last forever. Jesus himself shows up in these verses. Today's text includes perhaps the most well-known words of Micah, found in Micah chapter 6. Micah 6, 1 through 6, shows the Lord outlining his case against Israel. This is like a courtroom scene where God is the plaintiff and Israel the defendant. Israel is guilty of living their own way. God asks what he he has done against Israel, that they are acting so badly. He reminds Israel that he saved them from Egypt and their bondage and did many other righteous acts on their behalf. Micah 6, 6, 7, and 8 show Israel's acknowledgement of guilt and the Lord's response. Israel tries to find ways to pay for its guilt. But God desires mercy, not sacrifices. In verse 6, Israel wonders if many costly burnt offerings will cover their offense. No, it will not. In verse 7, Israel asks if thousands of rams would please God. Will that do? No. Or how about 10,000 rivers of oil? That's a lot of oil. That represented money back then. Um, Food as well, but that's a lot of money. I mean, how could you even calculate how much one river of oil is worth, right? Imagine the Merrimack River. From its mouth near Newburyport, 117 miles inland to its beginning in Franklin, New Hampshire, north of Concord. Now imagine it full of olive oil. Just think about that, 117 miles of river of olive oil. How much would that be worth? Even the Parker River, which is close to here and much smaller, would still be worth a lot of money. Now picture 10,000 rivers, 10,000 Merrimack rivers of olive oil. Or how about paying with a firstborn child? The pagan nations around Israel sacrificed babies, which was a heinous practice that the Lord clearly was against. How much is a child worth? Way more than 10,000 rivers of oil, that's for sure. Would any of these cover Israel's sin or make up for it? No. In Micah 6.8, we see what the Lord is after. We see what God values above all else. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Like in 1 Corinthians 13, sacrifice without mercy or actions without love are noisy and obnoxious. God is after our hearts. He wants us. God says he has already shown us what is good and what he requires. It is simple to read just a few short words but hard to put into practice and live out with consistency. God clearly says that his people are to be known, like he is, by their justice, mercy, 
and humility. This is what he wants. It is amazing that God would reveal so plainly what he wants to his people to be like and to do. There is no mystery here. In contrast, this is uh, very different than what the pagan mystery religions required people to do, just to try to find out what their gods might want them to do. Here, the one true God, Jehovah, makes it very clear. Bam. He just lays it out. So for the rest of our time, let's take a look, a closer look at what these words in verse 8 really mean for us in our lives. In verse 8, we see what God wants, and, we, and he wants us to act justly, right? Love mercy and walk humbly with him. So what does that mean, to act justly? It, one, another way to translate it is to do justice. And what is justice? So there are various words for justice in the original biblical languages. More than a thousand of them show up, repetitions, in the Bible. It is one of the most common themes in the Bible. Justice is really important to God, but it is not so easy to define. It is a bit like a diamond with numerous facets that shine depending on how it is viewed. Chris Marshall in his book, The Little Book of Biblical Justice says, justice is at the heart of God, who God is and what God does. Again from Marshall, those who bear God's image must also be agents of justice. But what is justice? One commentary says to do justly is to act in a just, fair way toward others. Okay. Treat them as you would want to be treated. The golden rule found in Matthew 7, right? It is what is fair, but it is more than that. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery says that justice often is not simply what is fair, but what is right. Think of the parable of the workers in Matthew 20, where all the workers agreed to a good wage, but those who worked more thought they deserved more. On the one hand, it seems like they do deserve more. Yet they all agreed to work all day for the set price. The landowner was within his right to offer what he did, and the workers were within their right, rights to agree or not. All were paid what was agreed upon. Justice is also that which will promote flourishing. It is perhaps best characterized as restorative action. It sets things right, like when a doctor sets a broken bone or when someone removes a thorn that has been stepped on. Justice flows from God's own being and is the designated way God intends for the world to be. God sides with the poor, the powerless, and the oppressed. They need the assistance of God to balance out the scales since they don't have power due to their economic or political or other forms of poverty. Justice is God acting through his people to do reconciliation and restoration work, healing work, work that undoes the destruction of sin in our own lives, in the lives of our families, communities, towns, states, our country, and the nations. Justice is restoring harmony broken by sin. Where there is justice, there is flourishing. Justice, as the Bible teaches, has two particular aspects or components that together form justice as a whole. I'd like to highlight each of them now. One aspect of justice is its universality. 
The other is its specificity. All should be treated the same way, but also people should get what they need. What do I mean? First, let's consider the universal aspect of justice. For example, all people should have access to clean water, good food, educational opportunities, health care, meaningful employment. These things all help a person flourish. The Declaration of Independence includes the following. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men or people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is this aspect of justice borne out in daily life for all? No, but we intuitively say yes to this idea because it reflects the inner worth of each person made in the image of God. Second, let's look at the specific, the specific aspect of justice. What will help one person flourish may not help another, or may in fact hinder that person from flourishing. A ballet dancer needs tights and a leotard and ballet shoes to be able to perform and practice. A carpenter does not need those things to do his or her job. In fact, trying to climb a ladder or walk in ballet uh, or walk on a roof in ballet shoes would be downright dangerous, right? At least for me it would. No, a carpenter needs tools and work boots and gloves and a coat if it is wintertime. You get the idea. So we see that justice is complex and has both a universal and a specific aspect, but the goal overall is flourishing. That often demands some kind of restorative action. So justice is personal. It is filled with mercy and love and deliverance. Justice reaches out. Think of Jesus' many acts of justice numerous healings, his calling of the tax collector who then gave back what he stole plus a good amount extra, his kindness and salvation given to the woman who was about to be stoned, bringing Lazarus back to life, his tender interactions with children who came to him but the disciples wanted to send away. These are but a few examples. Just like Jesus reaches out to mercifully do justice, and help others, he wants us to do the same. So, if we want to flourish, we should act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Let's turn now to the second phrase, love mercy. What does it mean to love mercy? One commentary says, God is telling us, don't just show mercy, but love to show it. Give others the same measure of mercy you want to receive from God. What is mercy? Mercy can also be translated here as kindness and is closely related to compassion in the Bible. It is feeling compassion and acting upon it. Mercy is almost always centered around two things, caring for those who are vulnerable and the forgiveness of sins. It is God who is first merciful and the source of our mercy, just like the fact that we love because, we, because God first loved us, we can be merciful because he is he was first merciful with us. Mercy can also be defined as aid rendered to someone who is miserable or needy, especially someone who is in debt or without claim to favorable treatment. Who does that sound like? Me, us, right? Sinners, people who need saving. To whom does God show mercy? 
his people, and then others as well. So let's first look at how God shows mercy to us, his people. He sustains us, and he forgives us our sins. Exodus 34, 6 says, the Lord, then, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In James 1, we see God shows mercy to others by directing us, his people, to be caring for the fatherless, helping the widow or needy, respecting the poor, feeding the hungry, and clothing the naked, sharing the good news of God's salvation in Jesus. God wants us, his people, to show mercy like he does. He does not want us to be like the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, where we see a servant being forgiven a great amount by his king, yet, refu yet refusing to forgive a small debt to another fellow servant. The implication here is that since Christians are forgiven such a massive debt by God through the work of Jesus, we should therefore forgive each other the small debts we are so easily offended by. God knows we do not have unlimited resources, so he lays out the principle of leaving gleanings. That is, not using up all one has so that those in need are cared for. In Leviticus 19, we see these words, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Dr. Richard Swenson has written a wonderful book called Margin. Again, Dr. Richard Swenson, Margin. He brings this idea to modern life. The basic idea is that you can intentionally budget or leave yourself room or margin or space in your allotment of time, energy, and money so that you are not maxed out all the time. So you can say yes. So you can show mercy and step into a situation and offer real help, not mere platitudes or only words. Today we can apply this principle, leaving some margin in our allotment of time, energy, and money, so we can be available and merciful and meet some needs around us. And we can be sure that God wants his people to love mercy, to love to be compassionate. He wants us to flourish. So if we want to flourish, we should act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Finally, we come to the last part, walk humbly with your God. What is it to walk with God? Walking suggests a way or continuous progress over time and in a chosen direction. Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. How amazing that must have been. They were literally walking with God. Psalm 1. That psalm shows that the way of the righteous is to walk with God in active alignment with him. This is described as the virtuous life. Adam and Eve in the garden, pre-sin. Enoch, Noah, Jesus' disciples, and many others. So what about the humble way of walking? What is that about? That means trusting God knows best 
It means being teachable. Walking humbly means actively moving forward in faith, in submission. Or if God says to stay put, actively staying put in faith, in submission. Something I am still learning. And between every step is a pause, right? Sometimes the pauses are long. Even in the times of waiting, we can be submitting to God in humility through the work of his spirit. Bernard of Clairvaux was once asked, what are the three most important aspects of spiritual life? And he replied, humility, humility, humility. Walking with God includes disciplines such as regular reading of his word and being prayerful and thoughtful about how to handle situations and circumstances. Asking God and faithful believers to help you acknowledges your need and dependence on him and your community. We were created to be interdependent. Yet another growth area. So by walking humbly with God, we flourish and we become, we become more like the tree in Psalm 1. Green, strong, long-lasting, able to withstand storms, the storms of life. By walking with God, we also become more like God. Just, merciful, kind, patient, wise. God wants his people to walk with him and trust him. He wants us to be teachable and humble. He wants us to flourish. Sin makes it impossible to flourish. Sin is the opposite of flourishing. Sin causes pain and destruction and death, whereas justice, mercy, and obedience to God brings peace, harmony, joy, and life. The latter things are what God made us for. Whenever we are made aware of sin, the best course of action is to confess it and get help. But we don't always do that. We need to get help from God, from good friends, from teachers and mentors, but we don't always seek it. Sometimes we need professional help, but we don't always seek that either. Sometimes we try to ignore our sin, but that never works. It's kind of like when you have squirrels living in your attic. You can ignore them, but they're not going away. They need to be dealt with, and the longer we wait, the worse it gets. COVID has, in many ways, made it hard to flourish, admittedly so. There has been a lot of pressure and many changes to established patterns in our lives and society. There has also been a lot of turmoil beyond what COVID has brought. Many of us have felt alone, Confused, adrift, unsure. But God can use even difficult things for his purposes. Let me be clear. God hates death. But all the sadness and isolation, restrictions and deprivation, can, show, can serve to show us how much we need God to save us, to teach us, to remake us, and keep on remaking us in the lifelong process of being formed more and more like Jesus. Even though we don't usually understand at the time, God uses all that his people experience to shape them to be more like him, to think 
and act more like him, to do the things that he does, but only if we do not resist him. Remember the words of Spurgeon, only through faith in Christ does a person learn to do righteously and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us to that end do we fulfill these three divine requirements. Even in a pandemic and broken world, especially in a pandemic and broken world, there are ample opportunities around us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That is true flourishing. So, if we want to flourish, what should we do? We should act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Let's close with a last word from Charles Spurgeon. I would not advise any of you to try to be humble, but to be humble. As to acting humbly, when a person forces himself to it, that is poor stuff. When a person talks a great deal about his humility, humble bragging, right? That's not from Spurgeon, but. <laughs> when a person talks a great deal about his humility, he is generally a canting hypocrite. Humility must be in the heart, and then it will come out spontaneously as the outflow of life in every act that a person performs. True humility is thinking rightly of yourself, not meanly. When you have found out what you really are, you will be humble. To be humble will make you safe. To be humble will make you happy. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you do not withhold your will, your desires from us, your people. You clearly tell us what you want. We pray that you help us to do justice, love mercy, and kindness and to walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.